is the last week of school for my kids before they begin summer vacation. And I can tell you, they are pumped. They're so excited to finally be wrapping up the school year and to be jumping into the summer. And, and I don't blame them, right? I'm sure all of us can understand that feeling. As a kid, I always looked forward to summer vacation because let's be honest, uh, school is important. Okay, kids out there, it's important. But summer is so much more fun. Summer is just so much more fun uh, when we get the break. Right? We don't have to follow the rules that you do in school. You don't have to do all the stuff that your teacher tells you to do. You don't have to sit inside and, and do homework and, and assignments all day long. Uh, that stuff isn't quite as fun as summer break, right? Uh, and for me growing up, I always look forward to summer break. In fact, school, parts of it were okay. But for me, the, the most exciting part about school was recess, some of you, anybody relate to that recess was the thing you look forward to the most. But, but even at times, recess, uh, it, it had its own set of drawbacks. Uh, you see, the truth is, the school building isn't the only place where there are a set of rules that you're expected to follow. There's also a social code that exists at recess in the schoolyard that, that's very prevalent too. Most of us are probably familiar with this. So when you give kids a little bit of freedom and a little bit of autonomy, instinctively, they develop their own society. Uh, there's a system of governance that naturally is created by kids, and usually it's a system that's divided into various social classes. Uh, it's feudalistic. What I mean by that is there's a natural pecking order that kids arrange for themselves. And so I'm not saying I agree with this, but let's just see if, you, um, if you've experienced this. Typically in schools, right, the, the cooler kids, the more popular kids, the more athletic kids, they're the ones that are typically at the higher end of the social ladder. You have the normal kids who are somewhere in the middle, and then you typically have the kids who are less popular, right? They are the ones that they possess the lower area of that social ladder. Now, again, I'm not saying this, isn't ni this is nice, but this is what kids do. It's reality. And the place where, at least for me as a boy... I learned where I was at in the pecking order. It always was at recess. Let me explain for you. Now, we would play team sports as a kid at recess. So we'd play, you know, a game of basketball. We'd play football, flag football together. We'd play kickball. And when you had team sports and kids had to figure it out on their own, they would divide up the teams in a very unique way, right? And we probably are familiar with this. You'd have captains. And so usually the whole group would collectively establish the team captains or... If there was somebody who had a lot of power uh, in school or in that group, they would just declare that their team captain, okay? That would happen sometimes. So you'd have two captains. Those are usually, as you'd expect, the, the people at the top end uh, of the social order. And they would begin to select. Now, the first people selected, they would um, fit into the category where they were the upper level of that social class, right? They were the people who were well-respected. They were the leaders of that society, uh, the top-tier people regarded well by their peers. And then the people in the middle, right? Like I mentioned, some of the normal kids. I, I was never in the top, by the way. I was never the captain. I was never picked first. I was somewhere in the middle. And I was okay with that as long as I didn't end up at the bottom because the bottom line is there were people who were picked last and it, as a kid, as, as a little boy, that was something that for many people um, was a sad moment, right? Because this is such a public spectacle. Your peers are evaluating who's the best. And the people picked last were often sad because they were picked last. 
But I'll go one step further. Being picked last wasn't the worst thing to experience in all that. Being not picked at all, that was the worst thing. You see, sometimes you'd have a game, let's say it's basketball, it's five on five, and you've got more than 10 kids who want to play, and so the kids who were left over, right, they just wouldn't play. Or, worst of all, let's say you had some sort of sport where everybody had to match up with a defender. And so you had an even, you wanted even teams, and maybe there was one kid at the end, there was an odd number of people that wanted to play, one kid at the end, he was told, oh, sorry, there's nobody to match up with you, you can't play. That would be incredibly painful, I would think, right? And and the truth is, kids can be cruel. Uh, They can be mean at times. And I would like to say this morning, the good news is that adults don't treat others that way, but I would be lying to you. And we do this as adults. In fact, sometimes adults can be even worse. You see, the world loves to include some people and exclude others. This is the way the world works. In every culture, in every society, in almost every single group, there are some who are accepted and some who are rejected. There are some who are esteemed and some who are despised. There are some who are valued and some who are diminished. There are some who are embraced and there are others who are marginalized. This is just the way that the world works. It's sad, but it's true. And maybe this morning, there are some of you, as I'm sharing some of this and talking about the experience, you know, as a young boy in the schoolyard, maybe there are some of you who you've got some feelings that you've kind of pushed down and you haven't thought about for a while. And maybe I'm even unearthing some feelings right now in your mind and heart, and it's making you feel a little sad or a little uneasy. Maybe this morning you can identify with what it feels like to be at the bottom of the hierarchy. Maybe at moments throughout your life you have uh, felt unwanted, unloved, undervalued, rejected, diminished, marginalized, cast aside. Maybe you felt these feelings not just in school growing up, but maybe you felt it in, in the workforce. Maybe you felt it from your family even, that you were kind of the one that was the leftover that nobody really cared about or valued or looked at or paid attention to. Maybe in the group of friends, right, you were the low person on the totem pole. Or maybe even in past relationships, the people that you were in a relationship with, they they treated you as a lesser person. You were diminished. Many of us know what it feels like to be at the bottom We've experienced it. But this morning, I want to ask a question. If God were to structure a society, how would he order things? The question I want to ask is, who would God choose first? If you were to establish a society or a group or a kingdom, who would he select first? Well, thankfully, we don't need to guess. In fact, God's word is very clear. It's explicitly clear to us the answer to this, of the way that God orders his society, his kingdom. And if you want to see it with me this morning, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the very first chapter, very first book, I'm sorry, of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there with me 
in your Bibles. Uh, just so you know, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's about a third of the way, or sorry, two-thirds of the way into your Bible. And uh, Matthew is the very first gospel. It tells the story of Jesus. We're in Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to let you know that we are launching a brand new series this morning. It's called The Summer on the Mount. And the reason we're calling it The Summer on the Mount is because we're investigating throughout the duration of the majority of the summer, this amazing section of teaching found in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus covers a variety of different topics in his most famous block of teaching that, that has ever existed in the pages of Scripture, The Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend the summer on the mount with Jesus. That's what we're going to be doing here. And as I kick things off, I want to begin just by sharing a brief story with you. Now, I've shared before that in my college days, I did a little bit of traveling because I lived, I went to school overseas. Now, I didn't have a lot of money, right? I got a ticket overseas. And then once I traveled, I kind of uh, was a bum, right? I kind of just like would sleep train stations or, you know, we, I've slept on the street before. Uh, I would uh, camp out on the beach, do things like that. And I went to Israel for a whole month just over a little over a month, actually, on my last time that I was in school, my last summer there overseas. I was with some other buddies. We were in college. And back in these days, right, I have no wife. I have no kids. So I can live pretty reckless. And it doesn't matter, right? That's what college students often do. I know we had some uh, student graduates. Uh, please don't follow my example. But that's what some people choose to do. And I was a little bit reckless. So we would do all sorts of things like camp out or, or travel. Or I stayed with a, a, a guy who was a friend of mine. He was an Arab Israeli Christian who I was with his family and just would, you know, have, take part in their meals and stuff. And we would often travel around by hitchhiking. And so one of the experiences with my buddies is we were hitchhiking through northern Israel, right, near the Sea of Galilee. And we were trying to see all the amazing historic sites. And at one point, we get picked up by this car, right? We're kind of traveling down this road. We get picked up in a car. And the guy who picks us up, like he's in full garb. He's, a, I think, a Hasidic Jew. And I believe he even said that he was a rabbi. And so he picks us up. He opens the, you know, the car doors. We go in and uh, we're traveling. And my friend I mentioned who is from Israel, he's an Arab-Israeli Christian. He grew up in Israel. He's a citizen there, but he's of Arab descent. You know, he speaks Arabic and Hebrew fluently and speaks English pretty well too. He was our guide. And so he begins dialoguing in Hebrew with this rabbi that we're in the car. And all of a sudden, uh, the conversation kind of takes a turn. I noticed that the tone and tenor of the way that that conversation was playing out, it begins to get a little negative. And I can't really pick up many of the words. I don't know Hebrew. I know a couple words in Hebrew, but I'm pretty sure the word Yeshua is mentioned there, which is Jesus. And pretty soon I realize that my buddy is sharing the gospel with this Jewish guy. He's talking about how Jesus is the true Messiah, which this guy is really offended at this point. And so he pulls over quickly. And I, you know, I don't know what he said, but whatever it was, he kind of made it really clear. Get out. So we open the doors, we get out, and now we're just wandering in the middle of nowhere, walking for about a half a mile or so, until all of a sudden, in the horizon, we see this beautiful building, this, this church, and it's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Church of the Beatitudes. Now, what's interesting about this Church of the Beatitudes is that people believe that this is the historic site that Jesus went to when he took his disciples and when the multitudes followed him up on a hillside and he began to preach this amazing message. Uh, they call it the Church of the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes are the beginning section of the Sermon on the Mount. And it happens to be a Latin word, which means blessings. And this is the very section that we're talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, a, a well-known portion of scripture called the Beatitudes. 
And uh, to establish a little context for you as to where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew, I just want to reference a couple things real quick. If you've ever read Matthew's Gospel, it's the story of Jesus. So in the first couple chapters, it opens up and it talks about this birth story, how Mary, right, she was um, uh, had, had the, a virgin, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, she became pregnant. She had the, the child Jesus. And we read that story the first couple chapters. And then after that, Jesus, he grows up and he begins his public ministry in Matthew chapter four. And in the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus begins that whole ministry by making a proclamation about something. And so the first section I want to draw your attention to from Matthew chapter four, number one is the proclamation of Jesus. Jesus makes a very bold proclamation in Matthew chapter four, verse 17. This is what he says. He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when we often think about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of of, of God, which is synonymous in scripture, we often think about something that God is establishing that's only in the future. That's often how we think of the kingdom of God. It's something that will happen in the future. And there's nothing wrong with thinking about the kingdom in a future sense, but I want you to know that the Bible doesn't exclusively talk about the kingdom as if it's only a future thing. Uh, If you were with us this past winter, we went through a series called Living in the Last Days. And you remember, we talked about that the age that we live in is a very unique time in God's redemptive plan and purposes for all his creation. We live in a very special season. And if you remember, I talked a a little bit about how the Bible talks about two different ages in scripture. There's an age in the past, which are the age of, it's the age of promises. So God made promises to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He made promises about the fact that one day he was going to send a Messiah, Jesus, who was going to come and rescue God's people. These are the age of promises that took place in the past. And then there's also biblically an age of fulfillment when God fulfills the promises that he made to his people. Now, we talked about this in the series, but there's an overlap between the age of promise and the age of fulfillment. So when Jesus came the first time, he began to to complete God's promises, but he, he didn't complete it fully. He just inaugurated it at that point. So some of the promises of God, he began to fulfill at his first coming, but when he comes again, he will completely fulfill all of God's promises. So you have an age of promise, an age of fulfillment, and you have this overlap between the ages, this middle section. This is where we live right now between the first and second coming of Jesus. We're in the in-between, the time between the age of promise and the age of fulfillment, which means that we're people who live in an already but not yet kind of world. I gave some examples of this before in the other series, but salvation, for example. We know that because Jesus came the first time and died on the cross, through faith in Jesus, God declares us righteous and he saves us from the penalty of sin. And so as a Christian, I am saved by God's grace through faith. But the reality is when I walk around the world, I still experience the consequences and challenges of sin. Sin still lives within me. It lives within you. The world is fallen and broken. And so even though I've been saved from the penalty of sin, there are aspects of salvation that are yet to be complete. But one day when Jesus comes again, he will complete my salvation. And so salvation as a follower of Jesus, it's an already thing, but it's also not yet complete. Does that make sense? We talked about that before. The same thing is true for the kingdom of heaven. In one sense, 
We are waiting for the full establishment of God's kingdom. And when that happens one day in the future, it will be an amazing thing. But listen, it's not just a distant thing. It's dawning. The kingdom has invaded our current reality. It's already been inaugurated the first time Jesus came. Right, The king showed up and he brought a kingdom with him. And so it's an already but not yet kingdom. That's a reality for followers of Jesus. Which is why Jesus said in this passage, the kingdom of heaven, it's at hand. It's near. It's not just something you have to wait for. You get to experience the blessing of being included in God's kingdom here, now. King Jesus reigns in my heart. I belong to his kingdom today. And it's a wonderful place to be knowing that I belong to King Jesus. My citizenship is in heaven. Now, this is what Paul says. And so this is the amazing truth. It's an already but not yet kingdom. I already belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but also I'm awaiting the future fulfillment. And so does this make sense? Practically, it just means this, that we don't just have to wait for the blessings of God. We don't just have to wait for a future homeland and a future kingdom. No, right here, Right now, we can experience something of this. Now, remember, when Jesus came announcing a kingdom, he was speaking to a Jewish audience. They were familiar with the arrival of new kingdoms. It was not even 100 years removed from the time when Rome had come into Israel. It had conquered the area, and they said, listen, there's a new kingdom. It's the Roman kingdom, and we've now taken over around here. There's a new king in charge, and we now are occupying this territory. The Jewish people were used to this. But when Jesus came on the scene right, and began his public ministry, he was now saying, listen, there's a new king. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new king. I am the king, and I'm coming to establish a kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world, but a kingdom that's for this world. The kingdom that Jesus came to establish, it's for this world, and it's an already but not yet reality. This was the message that Jesus was proclaiming to his people. It was good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he said in chapter 4. And immediately after he says this, we're introduced not just to this proclamation, but then we're introduced to the people who are with Jesus. Specifically, these are going to be the people who are with Jesus when he goes up the mountain. And so the second section I want to talk about is number two, the people with Jesus. Who are the people that were with Jesus when he began proclaiming the good news of the kingdom? Well, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through the rest of chapter four. I'm just going to summarize some things. So what Jesus does right after he pronounces this amazing good news of the kingdom is he begins to go around and call people to be his disciples, his followers. He goes over to where the sea is, and he sees Andrew and James. They're fishermen. They're with their dad. And he says, hey, guys, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So why don't you drop your nets and come follow me? And so that's what they do. They drop their nets. They leave behind the business. In fact, dad is just sitting there in the boat going, hey, guys, what's going on here? And they leave. They follow Jesus. These are the guys who begin to make up the first group of followers, Now, if you know anything about the history at that time and what was going on in that region, if you were from the region of Galilee, like Andrew uh, and like Simon, Peter, if you grew up around there, that would mean that you were probably pretty poor, especially if you were a fisherman. That's a pretty normal job. You might have made a living off of it, but barely. You're scraping by but you were most likely pretty poor. In that society, there was no such thing as a middle class, right? If you lived in Palestine in the first century, there was an elite minority group of people who had all the money and all the power, and they all lived in the city. 
They were the wealthy landowners, and so they were the ones who, who had positions of influence and power and money. And then the, the vast majority of people, many who lived in the city, but many who lived out in the countryside, in fact, all who lived in the countryside, they were the poor ones. They were the ones who were farmers and, and fishermen. And so Jesus, he's speaking to a group of people here and calling them to follow him, but these are not the elite in society. These are the guys who are at the low end of the social structure. They're the ones at the bottom. But Andrew and, and, and Peter, they're not the only ones who follow Jesus. If you notice in chapter 4, there are also crowds of people who are drawn to Jesus. And notice the description of these crowds. It says, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, these are the people who are following Jesus around. These are the lowest of low in that society. Now, we live in a time right now, right, where when people are sick or diseased or struggling with certain things, we have all kinds of programs. Uh, we have all kinds of government funding. We have hospitals. We have shelters. We try to reach out and take care of the poor and needy and sick, at least oftentimes we do. But in Rome in the first century under the Roman Empire, that never happened. There were no hospitals. There were no programs. There was no government funding. There's no charity, right? In fact, a cool study throughout history, you'll realize is that things like hospitals and charities, that really began in culture and society when Christian influence rose to prominence over the years. It was Christians who began to instill that in the culture and society. But at this time, nobody cared for the people who were struggling or sick or, or downcast. These were people who were the ones that everybody looked down upon in society. They were the marginalized. These are the people who were familiar with being outcasts. They were the unloved ones, the unwanted ones. They were the despised ones, the diminished ones. These are the ones who were prone to being mocked and abused and mistreated by those who were in a positions of power. They were the ones that people would avoid. They would see someone who was struggling with some sort of illness and they would go to the other side of the street and walk around them because they were impure and unclean. And so these are the people who were used to being ignored and neglected. These were the leftovers. These were the leftovers in society, the ones no one would ever choose, no one would ever pay attention to, no one would ever consider. And yet, when Jesus came, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, these are the very first people that Jesus chose to speak to. When Jesus came talking about a new society, a new establishment, a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. These are the people he chose to spoke, speak to first. These are the people he targeted first. These were the crowds who were there when Jesus went up to the mountainside and began proclaiming this amazing news about the kingdom. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, when you read uh, some commentaries or see some people speak about this, some people will say that, like often happens in the Gospels, Jesus is surrounded by the crowds, and so he retreats from the crowd in order to be alone with his disciples. So some people say that he's only talking to the very close followers in this. It's not a big group of people, but, but they're not reading the whole Sermon on the Mount. If you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does it say? It says that the, the masses, the crowds, they marveled at the teaching of this man. Jesus may be specifically focusing some of his attention to the disciples throughout this sermon. 
But Jesus knows full well that the people who are listening, who are in earshot, who are paying attention, these are the people who are the lowest of the low in society. These are the marginalized people who've been mistreated their entire life. Jesus is speaking so that way the people on the bottom can hear. This is what he does. Jesus had a message for these people, for the ones who were neglected, and suffering who the world left behind, the ones at the bottom, Jesus had a very important message, which leads to our third point. Point number three, the pronouncements of Jesus. To these people who are listening, Jesus begins making these pronouncements about the kingdom of heaven. These are the nine beatitudes that we find, the nine different blessings that are associated with the kingdom. And so Jesus is talking about things like poverty and grief and humility and, and a number of these things. Now, for many of us, if we grew up in the church, we were taught different things about the Beatitudes. Maybe some of us were taught that these are moral guides that we should follow in order to receive a blessing from God. So if I want to be blessed by God, I need to make myself poor. I need to be mourning. I need to be uh, somebody who, who is uh, lowly in order to receive a blessing from God. Some of us growing up, we were taught that this is the requirement for entering the kingdom of God. If I want to be part of God's kingdom, I need to make myself poor, and I need to mourn, and I I need to make sure that I'm I'm meek and, and humble. But listen, this is not what the pronouncements are primarily all about. The Beatitudes are not a means of entering the kingdom or even advancing in the kingdom. These are an extension of grace from a loving God who wants to bless those who are familiar with life at the bottom. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. That's what these blessings are all about. The kingdom of heaven does not function like the kingdoms of earth. It's an upside down kingdom. It's about the first being last and the last being first. These are the Beatitudes. God is in the business of reversing the typical pattern that we see play out throughout the world. God doesn't have to follow our conventional rules of society. He structured his own kingdom, his own society. God has a heart for seeking out first those who are least likely to be chosen in this world. Hear me. Jesus loves the leftovers. He loves the leftovers. These are the people he has a heart for. It's funny, I often encounter people in the world who they've been disillusioned by things in the Christian faith and many of them walk away and they often say, oh, I'm not really interested in that whole Jesus thing. They've never really encountered Jesus probably. They probably encountered Christians who act like jerks because if they encountered Jesus, and how can you not give up everything in life and say, I want to follow this man with my life. He is someone who loves Deeply, those who everyone else avoids. How beautiful is the heart of Jesus? It's the most wonderful thing, most wonderful leader the world has ever known. Jesus is beautiful. This is his heart. These are the Beatitudes. And now that I've spent the majority of my time building things up, we've got nine of them to cover. So I got to go real quick. I'll be honest. I can't at length break down each and every one of these Beatitudes, but I do want to cover each one just really briefly before we wrap up some of this message. And so the first Beatitude that Jesus focuses on is this topic of the poor. Now, I'm going to just have you read along in your Bible or you can listen. I won't put them on the screen to make it easier. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, I mentioned again, the people who were in that crowd who heard Jesus preach and the disciples who were there, these are people who are familiar with being poor. It's likely that every single human that was there that day lived at or below the poverty line. Now, when you're poor, you're someone who's lacking, right? You're somebody who doesn't have certain things. You're somebody who's desperate. And so for Jesus to talk about the blessing of being poor in spirit, he's probably likely referring to a number of things, but at its core, in essence, these are people who are spiritually desperate. They have nothing to cling to, no status, nothing to hold on to, nothing to offer God. These are people who have absolutely nothing. They're lacking, they're destitute. And yet in God's kingdom, these are the people who receive everything. God graciously gives them more than they can imagine. Jesus says theirs, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a, a kingdom, a life of overflowing abundance. That's the first beatitude. The next beatitude we see is this topic of grieving Jesus speaks about. Talks about grieving. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, people who are grieving are familiar with grief, as many of you possibly are. They're people who have experienced loss or hardship of some kind. They know what heartache feels like. These are people who are aware of the effects of sin, not only in the lives of others, but even in their own lives. They know what sin does, and they grieve over that. They're broken by those things. And to these people, Jesus says, they shall be comforted. How awesome is that? The next beatitude we see is this topic of being humble. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now meek, that's a word we don't typically use today, but these are people who are not highly esteemed. These are the low people. They're people who lack privilege or status. They're the humble ones in society, the servants. These aren't ones that we would look at and expect much out of them in life or expect them to be given any position of power at all. But yet to these people, Jesus says, these are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. These are the ones that will rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. And so this is a privileged position, a powerful position that God gives to the meek ones in his kingdom. Next, Jesus addresses the topic of righteousness. He talks about the righteous. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this would be very familiar to this group of people because what that would mean is that there are people who see the injustice of the world. They see how broken and messed up the world is and they have a hunger, they have a longing to see all those things that are wrong with the world made right. These are people who have a deep yearning for the broken things of the world to be restored. And if you spent your entire life like these people being abused, mistreated, neglected, overlooked, like these people who are gathered on the mountainside, then you would certainly have a hunger and thirst for things to be made right. And Jesus says to these people, they shall be satisfied. The next beatitude he addresses is this topic of the merciful. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, when we think about the topic of mercy, it's this idea that someone does something wrong and they deserve to be judged for it or punished for it. But instead of giving them the judgment they deserve, we withhold the judgment and instead show compassion. Even though the people don't deserve compassion, when you show compassion instead of bringing judgment, that's an example of being merciful. And Jesus says that in positions of life like this, when people abuse you or mistreat you or neglect you, when you don't respond in judgment but instead show mercy, God will respond in the same way by showing you mercy. 
The next blessing we see is connected to this idea of purity, of being pure. Jesus says in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now this one deserves just a little bit of explanation, but if you were a Jew, like all these people were, you would be used to hearing the word purity. In the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, God established a whole system, an order, uh, that was part of your ritual worship, where if you had done certain things or something happened to you or you were sick or diseased, there would be moments in your life where you would be rendered ceremonially unclean. You'd be ritually impure. And so because of that, in those moments, you would have to exit from the congregation, right? You couldn't be part of the assembly of Israel. You couldn't go to the temple and experience a connection with God. You had to remove yourself from the culture and society and go outside of the camp until your time of impurity was over. And then when a priest would see you and say, oh, you're no longer impure, you can come back. Then you'd be washed and cleansed and restored. That was part of the culture in Israel, even in the first century when Jesus lived. Which means the people who were gathered on that hillside, the diseased, the defiled, the deformed, according to Jewish law, they were ceremonially unclean. And this wasn't just a temporary thing. For many of them, this was a lifelong thing. Whatever the disease or debilitation they struggled with, it kept them from the assembly. It kept them from God's presence. They couldn't enter into the temple and offer sacrifices like normal people. They had to remove themselves from that. So for many people who were listening that day, they were used to being kept at arm's length. Their physical condition kept them from, from being close to God's presence and God's people. But you see, the kingdom that Jesus is establishing here is not about external purity. It's about a purity in the heart. It's not about what happens to you outside. It's about your heart, the condition of your heart. And Jesus says, those who have a pure heart, they have access. They shall see God. How beautiful is that? The next beatitude we see is the topic of those who make things peaceful. The peacemakers. Jesus says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, when we think about the idea of being a peacemaker, right? You have two parties who are in conflict. And in order to try to bring peace to the situation, a peacemaker steps into the middle of that and they try to bring some reconciliation. They don't join sides. They're not interested in adding to the division. What they're doing is seeking to bring peace to whatever that conflict is. And inevitably, when you do that, when you step into the middle of a conflict and you don't choose sides, but you try to reconcile, what often happens? You now are in the line of fire and you yourself are targeted. And those on both parties, they're upset because you're not picking their side. And so in response, they're mad at you because you're stepping in the middle and trying to create peace. But see, the blessing of the kingdom is that those who are committed to making peace, those are the ones who are reconciled with God. They have peace with God. In fact, they have fellowship with God and they're now called sons of God. The next topic that Jesus addresses is the topic of being persecuted. He says, blessed, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are people who are attacked, not for doing something wrong, but for doing something right. And again, Jesus says, in response to that, they received the kingdom. And the last beatitude he mentions are those who are despised, those who are hated. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I want you to think very clearly with the crowd in earshot who Jesus is talking to when he's saying this blessing. 
These are people, their entire life, they've been despised, they've been hated, they've been mistreated by their own society, by their own people. They're the despised ones. And here Jesus says, when you're hated for my sake, you'll be blessed in the kingdom. He says, great is your reward in heaven. These are the Beatitudes. These are the blessings in scripture. It's a blessing to people who've spent their life at the bottom. That's what this is. And perhaps this morning, as you just think about your life, you think about your experiences, maybe it even started in childhood, like I talked about in the beginning. Maybe you are familiar with what it feels like to experience life at the bottom. Maybe you know what it's like to be rejected. Maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe you're in a marriage. It was crumbling because you were pushed aside marginalized, cast off. Maybe you're familiar with what it's like to be unloved or unwanted or unappreciated. Maybe you know what it's like to be despised or mistreated by others. Maybe your entire life has been spent at the bottom of society. You're the kind of person that no one would look at, no one would choose. But listen, when everyone else overlooks you, I want you to hear this very clear. God sees you. When nobody else sees you, God sees you. And catch this, he loves you. God chooses you. He wants you. When nobody else does, God wants you. If you spent your life on the sidelines being marginalized, if you've always been at the bottom, God picks you first. That's the beauty of the Beatitudes. This is what we see. He had this group of people, and it's to these people so they can hear. He talks about the blessings of the kingdom. And so the big idea this morning, is, it's real simple, but it's this. God's greatest blessings are for those at the bottom. These are the Beatitudes. It's, it's wonderful. It's about God taking everything messed up in the world and flipping it upside down in his kingdom. That's what it is. It's about God making all the wrongs that happen in life and turning them upside down and making them right. So no matter how you've been treated or mistreated throughout life, God is in the business of reversing these things in his kingdom. The truth is the greatest blessings from God through to those at the bottom. Now this morning, I would normally, right around this point, wrap things up, tie a nice bow around it, make us feel good, and we close the service. But I have one more thing, if you'll allow me to do, just real briefly. I have one more point, and it'll be short, I promise. But I feel like we would be amiss to talk about this message and ignore the very final point, because I think God wants to see, have us see one more thing, one more amazing thing in these Beatitudes. And so the last thing I want to touch on, number four, is the portrait of Jesus portrait of Jesus. If you were to look at these Beatitudes, talking about the, all these various characteristics and all these different things that, that, that God mentions, and you were to look at these, and you were to put them all together and, and put them in a blender and turn it on high, and then see what comes out, what would be the picture or portrait that you would see? Who do the, all these Beatitudes embody? Well, let me help you figure this out. Who was the one who was born in a manger, the poor son of a carpenter, growing up in Nazareth, a poor town. 
Who was the one who was familiar with grieving? In fact, he grieved for his people, for the city of Jerusalem. He wept because of their unbelief. Who is the humble one who, even though he had every opportunity to exert his power because he was God's son, he made himself lowly and he washed the feet of his disciples? Who is the righteous one? The one who constantly upheld God's law at every moment in life. Who is the one who was merciful when he had every opportunity because of our sin to pronounce judgment upon us? Instead, he responded to us in mercy. Who is the one that completely was without sin? Everything he did was right. He was pure of heart to the fullest. Who is the one who makes peace between us and God by the shedding of his blood? Who is the one who was persecuted and suffered for righteousness sake so that we we could be declared as righteous in God's sight? Who is the one who was despised so much so that he was hated that they took him and nailed him to a cross and crucified him so that we could have eternal life? This is Jesus. The Beatitudes are a portrait of Jesus. He is the one who embodies each and every one of these. And because Jesus was willing to go to the lowest place, for you and for me because he was willing to subject himself to the world's worst. He endured all the worst that the world could give to him. The sin of the world was placed upon his shoulders. He took the lowly position for you and for me so that way the blessings of God could overflow to us who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and become part of his family and part of his kingdom. All this blessing. It's because of the work that Jesus accomplished. Thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to Jesus who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And not only that, the greatest of those blessings, that's reserved for those who are at the bottom. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I'm in awe of your heart. So often we think about the example of who God is. And even as Christians, there are times where we feel like maybe you're this big cosmic bad guy who allows difficulty to enter into our life. But Lord, when I look at the portrait of Jesus and I see everything that you did, everything that you endured, that you placed your son into for my sake and for our sake, Lord, how can we not just go, man, you are the most amazing, beautiful thing ever. And I want to give my life to you forever and ever. Whatever you want, Lord, have it. It's yours. You're a God who loves to bless those at the bottom. I'm reminded of the words of Mary when she found out uh, her privileged position and your redemptive purposes. And she said, Lord, how you looked at her, how you took notice of her in her humble estate. And Lord, this is the pattern that we see in the Beatitudes, that those who are overlooked, those who are marginalized, those who are the low people in life, these are the ones who you see, who you love, and who you bless. And so each and every person in the room, each and every person online, whatever we're going through, whatever they're facing right now, Lord, I pray that you would just reassure them of your love for them. That you would fill their hearts with gratitude and wonder at the amazing blessings that are bestowed upon us 
in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would live out each and every day for your glory, for your pleasure, that we who currently belong to your kingdom, that we would labor in such a way that that we would just advance the work that you've called us to do. Lord, we know that you've said that, that the kingdom is the calling that we have. And Lord, I thank you that that we get to share in the beauty of the kingdom now. But Lord, we also look forward to the day when your kingdom come, when your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so thank you for that blessing. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for seeing and blessing and loving those at the bottom. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen.